0: America's got money problems, inflation, out-of-control debt and spending, and it's only getting
1: worse. But there's hope. Solving America's money problems one hour at a time. It's time for Good Money with Though Bishop. Good morning. This is Good Money with Though Bishop. This is the product of the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S.org. Mises.org is where you can find more content like you will get here on this show. Big news this week with Fitch, downgrading America's credit rating from AAA to uh, AA+. Uh, The reasons given, not a particular big surprise, particularly for listening to shows like this, uh, runaway spending, and I particularly like the concerns over political brinksmanship, a a degrade in – or rising concerns about how America politically deals with these issues, uh, which is seems kind of uh, considering that it is the the political brinksmanship that creates the only opportunities for there to be very serious conversations about uh, America's unsustainable debt levels uh, seems seems interesting. Um, it's worth remembering that uh, Fitch was not the first credit rating agency to, to downgrade America's credit rating. It actually started uh, with uh, standards and poor's back in 2011, kind of as a result um, in, in response to the first time the debt ceiling became one of the big political brute ha-has in DC. Um, and what's also amusing is, is the response from our very enlightened Expert class, people such as uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, um, who immediately went out to complain about this downgrade, expressing the uh, passion, the, the, the certainty that people like policymakers like herself and the Biden administration at large have into getting America in a sustainable debt pattern. Um. To, to get our books aligned, which of course is a, a complete lie. There is no interest, there is no political will at all within D.C. to start getting serious about America's debt problems. Um, our spending has been on an unsustainable path since far before um, even the 2011 battle over the ceiling then. And there is no serious plan on the table to deal with the real underlying factors here. Uh, entitlement programs, um, which, which are not even fully baked into this puzzle, right, with the, with the various future liabilities not included into current debt levels. Uh, you know, Any attempt to make even minor tweaks at the edges results in campaign propaganda of throwing grandma off the cliff. Um, Any serious conversations about reining in slicing and dicing some of the more serious aspects of the administrative state that hamper the productive capacity of the country uh, creates all sorts of great saber rattling from those vowing their seriousness on these physical issues And this goes to America's – and really the world's – much larger problem, which is this fundamental dynamic of economic denialism, the sort of viewpoint that ultimately economic outcomes are a measure of political will. They have very little to do with economizing uh, these conversations of trade-offs and the like. the reason why there is no real interest in these conversations within Washington is um, a topic that came up last week during Mises University, our week-long program, which was a lot of fun to uh, share a little bit with you guys last week on this show. Uh, but uh, one of our economists, Dr. Carl Friedrich Israel, uh, who is a economics professor in Angers, France. Um, he had a great lecture last week about central bank policy and inequality, kind of highlighting the ways in which uh, modern monetary policy has significantly increased uh, the wealth to income ratio, which means that, uh, you know, kind of income rates, the, the, the amount that you must work in order to sort of achieve certain wealth Dynamics Within a country which has all sorts of interesting consequences in terms of uh, intergenerational economic relationships and the like. But he talked about this aspect of collective corruption that the elites in the West right now who are the ones that hold the reins of power that get to make these political decisions on how we handle government budgets or national policies on credit and finance they are the ones that are benefiting from this expansion of wealth through investments and the like. And it is those outside of power that are really bearing the brunt of these consequences. And the same dynamic of collective corruption goes directly to what is fueling this underlying problem with our runaway spending. The politicians, the bureaucrats that rely upon their employment of the politicians, um, you know, they are perfectly fine. They are well taken care of by making promises that future generations must pay for. And so this downgrade has been attacked by Washington critics as being arbitrary, being reliant upon, uh, I believe Janet Yellen's word was outdated data and the like, which is funny because the, the data being outdated it's, it's even worse now than than you know what what the time frame that she's talking about um it, it is arbitrary even to the point where this is not a a recent phenomenon there's nothing that has sparked in the last quarter that should give people pause in questioning the uh credit quality of the united states government um the problem, these issues have been baked in the cake for a very long time. So the question is, what can be done about it? Now, as we see going on right now, um, national politics is doing what it tends to do. It is you know, the, the Republican primary has become an absolute clown show, a debate on personality or the lack thereof. In the case of some candidates, you know, these, these sort of arbitrary. Um, You know, who who has the hottest take on the current outrage of the time? There's no serious conversation um, about dealing with these underlying issues. Even a candidate like uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, who, you know, has a record of governing, who put out a platform last week on economic independence for America and the like. Well, there's a lot of good bullet points within it. Um, you know, reigning in the Federal Reserve, dealing with regulation, yada, yada, yada. These bullet points sound great. Uh, the problem is putting them into practice. The problem is what does a political environment look like if you try to make even the most minor reforms on the very issues that are creating the problems that this downgrade and credit rating really reflect? Of course this is the, the overarching problem with government. Bureaucracy replaces market signals. Uh, you know, the, the proper allocation of resources becomes hijacked by political fiat. Uh, credit expansion replaces savings. And again, you know, all of this is guided by this overarching ideological viewpoint, that basic economics is really not all that important for managing an economy. Uh, the consequences for this we're seeing play out in our day to day lives. If you're going past a gas station right now, you are seeing prices go up yet again. Uh, we are seeing weakness with the dollar internationally. We are seeing the continuing consequences of geopolitical tensions, the impact that is having on OPEC countries and the like. Uh, we are still and you know dealing with inflation far beyond current targets bureaucracy has replaced the market on the other side of the break we're going to talk more about this overarching theme of bureaucracy versus markets with our guest economist state fegley so stay tuned this is good money on money talk 1010 welcome back to good money On this Thursday morning, I'm your host, Tho Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S.org, where you can find more content like you'll find on this show. And we have a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If you want a beautiful copy of The Austrian Magazine, uh, which is delivered to your doorstep every other month, featuring great economic commentary from experts from all around the world, you can get your copy for free. At mises.org/magazine again, m i s e s dot org/slash/magazine. We've got some great articles in this current issue. Um, uh, again, we have every month. It's a it's a we have, we have some great economic commentary. If you enjoy the content of this station, I think you'll really enjoy it. Again, it is for free. For Money Talk Ten Ten listeners, at m i s e s dot org/slash/magazine. One proud subscriber of The Austrian Magazine is our guest today, Dr. Tate Fegley of Montreat College in North Carolina, and he was one of my favorite lecturers last week at our Mises University program, delivered uh, three lectures last week, all kind of geared to the underlying dynamic, the importance of understanding the, uh, the most core fundamental Ah, uh, economic concept in terms of building prosperity, which is the importance of economic calculation. Um his lectures focused on uh, policing and uh, economic calculation, bureaucracy in the of the police state, um, the bureaucrats in the deep state, which we'll certainly be talking about today, and also whether big data and AI can solve the socialist calculation problem, um which a very fascinating topic on on a, one of those issues that uh, it seems to be sort of recycled um, by generation. Um, but so, Tate, before we start, how are you doing this morning?
0: Oh, I'm having a wonderful morning. It's a bit rainy here, but um, yeah, things are looking up. Excellent, excellent. Well, Tate, uh, your, your lecture's
1: got some, some good reviews, the YouTube comments. Usually not great uh, to, to look at the YouTube comments always,
0: but... Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. It was a real pleasure and a privilege to uh, be invited to speak at Mises University. So I was able to give three talks, as Tho mentioned, one called uh, The Political Economy of Policing, which has the title of my dissertation. And uh, yeah, distilling that down into 45 minutes. Uh, basically, it was a comparative institutional analysis of private security, and government policing. Uh, why do we observe these differences between them? Uh, it's heavily focused on these issues of trade-offs in how policing is provided. So you hear, for example, Ben Franklin talk about this trade-off between liberty and security, where I guess I see the, the trade-off more properly conceived as a trade-off between uh, convenience or dignity and security applying this to uh, the TSA, for example, where there's this apparent trade-off between uh, the dignity of travelers and uh, security, and saying, uh, even if TSA agents had our best interests at heart, uh, without uh, the institutions of private property and voluntary exchange and competition, uh, they can't know what this optimal trade-off is um uh, between convenience and dignity and security uh we can only know that through competition uh so apply this to uh, different issues like the use of force uh bringing up this example of uh, of starbucks getting in trouble a few years ago for ejecting two men from a starbucks for not buying anything and uh, not leaving either and this tended, this seemed to be an entrepreneurial error for starbucks even though they followed all the rules Uh, These men were trespassing. We can't know whether to use force in a way that uh, maximizes uh, consumer well-being without those institutions of private property and uh, voluntary exchange uh, enabling the calculation of profit and loss. And uh, turning to the second lecture, which was economic calculation in light of big data and AI, uh, this question of, uh, you know, in 1920, Ludwig von Mises published his right, uh, economic calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth, uh, pretty much destroying the intellectual you're state, back, uh for socialism, that socialism could create prosperity. And, um, and it seems like ever since then, there's been these attempts by the socialists to try to resurrect, their, uh, try to respond to that. There's some way we can uh, ha- still have socialism and uh, not just be in total chaos and destitution. And, basically, the argument is, well, no, um this is still correct. These new technologies, such as AI and big data, uh, can't overcome this problem. They can't uh, be a substitute for the free market system in terms of creating prices, uh, responding to consumer demand, and knowing how to allocate resources. And then the third presentation was called uh, Bureaucrats in the Deep State. And uh, the hardest part about this was uh, defining the deep state. It's still, uh, it's not an uncontroversial term. Um, I don't use like the Wikipedia definition, which I believe was written by the deep state uh, in which it's some conspiracy theory that may or may not exist. uh, no, we can readily identify uh, certain people within the deep state. I would definitely include uh, the intelligence agencies in this. Um, And not just necessarily limited to them, but also other bureaucrats that um, operate with de facto uh, unaccountability. Uh, That even when we see the FBI or other agencies engaging in misconduct, nothing really seems to change. So that's the uh, de facto um, unaccountability. In a de jure sense, I think Congress does have ways of holding them accountable to but for whatever reason doesn't. And that's what I partially wanted to explain in this presentation. Why is it the case that um, there, there are these accountability me- mechanisms that democracy is supposed to have, why aren't they operating correctly? And say um, another element of the deep state is that it's, uh, it's part of the swamp, it sticks around. Uh, you know, presidents may come and go, uh, the party in control of Congress may change, but the deep state personnel, they tend to stay the same. Their policies tend to stay the same. So what I wanted to explain this presentation is, again, why, why don't they seem to be held accountable? And uh, it was a lot of fun to, to give this, this talk, especially all of them. But um, this one, uh, I think, was probably the spiciest. And for
1: our listeners, they can find them at, uh, uh, at the Mises Institute YouTube channel at uh, Mises Media. On, on YouTube, and hey, one of the things I enjoyed about your talks is that they all kind of had a common thread about the importance of economic calculation as sort of the, the foundation for economic growth, for you know, kind of the efficient uh, providing of, of various services. For our listeners, can you start with just sort of that that core basic block on you know just the importance of you know why economic calculation matters, why political will sort of government fiat isn't enough, that you need this, this foundational block of economic calculation, um, which, again, was kind of a common theme throughout your three talks.
0: Yeah, I hope I didn't sound too much like a broken record, but yeah, just like uh, C.S. Lewis, how he sees uh, Christianity, the light by which he sees everything else. It feels as though, in terms of economic analysis, economic calculation is the light by which I see everything. And so... What is economic calculation? It's its as basis profit and loss calculation. Um, In a socialist system, starting from that starting point, there's no private property, and so there's no exchange. Um, If we're talking about the factors of production, factories, uh, farms, mines, all these things that we use to ultimately create uh, consumer goods, in order to be able to, for an entrepreneur to be able to calculate his cost of production, there have to be prices for these things. And so when you have a central planner who uh, is in charge of all of them, that there's no private property, as um, Marx wanted, then there's no exchange, so there's no price formation. And so when the central planner, I mean, the central planner can decide to use uh, these producer goods, these capital goods, in certain ways to create certain consumer outputs, but without any common unit, without being able to use money prices, All the information available to Central Planner is, okay, we have these physical resources that we can use to produce things. We chose to produce these consumer goods. Uh, Did we allocate resources to more highly valued uses? And the Central Planner is just completely in the dark, has no idea whether he did a good job uh, according to what consumers desire. And this doesn't only apply to a a fully socialist system, but to any government-run enterprise. So, including police, think about a, a government police department. Uh, they are run bureaucratically. This is Mises' term for an organization that can't engage in uh, profit and loss calculation because it's, I mean, they have revenue. Uh, police departments that are cities tax us. The tax money goes to these police departments. They produce outputs. But there's, no, this, there's this lack of connection between uh, what they produce and whether consumers actually want it. Consumers aren't able to demonstrate Uh, through voluntarily buying policing services, that they prefer what police departments produce compared to alternative uses of those resources. And so uh, even if we assume that police departments, police officers are fully well-intentioned, from a consumer well-being standpoint, they don't know exactly how to allocate resources to their most highly valued uses. And so they have to find some other way to do this. So from this basis, we can, Uh, explain how, when we see police departments doing certain activities that are very different from uh, security bought on the market, this is the reason why. And it's just full of applications. We see the deep state is also fully cut off from consumer feedback. Um, And so I'd say this is a necessary input in the uh, chicanery we see from Uh, agents of the intelligence agencies and uh, the FBI and the Department of Justice. Um, So, like I said, even if we consider the best of intentions on their part, they still don't know how to allocate resources in the most satisfying way for consumers. But when we don't assume the best of intentions on their part like that, uh, we can begin to see the real abuse that we do see. And it's interesting, it's one of the areas where I think the, the assumption of monopoly
1: has been sort of ingrained for a very long time, has been within the, the educational sphere, particularly like K through twelve education, right? You know, your your you know, where you went to school was largely dictated mm-hmm. by just, you know, what happened to be your zip code or your neighborhood within there. You kinda of dallied up students by you know, by geographical location. And now you've seen a, a major um surge. And, you know, recognition of, you know, while we're not, you know, not, not, a, not a fully privatized system, but rather a lot more competition within that sphere using sort of a voucher system alike, it allows for a lot more experimentation within terms of, of how school is conducted, different options for students, um, different teaching styles, and the like. And yet, you know, when we think outside of education, this is still sort of a, you know, it, it's, it's a topic that is is sort of it's 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 you know we 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 aren't talking about you know vouchers in the the you know play services quite yet though we have seen environments particularly like, uh, like Detroit in Michigan where play services were completely lacking for the well being of citizens there where people were starting to to explore and utilize various private services in the market you know we we've seen it within particularly commercial businesses within sort of high risk areas where they might have. You know, security guards stationed outside. There might be additional factors in terms of patting down before going into an area. Last year, I was in in Atlanta going into, you know, the equivalent of an Applebee's and had to be pat down for going in because some of the crime issues within that neighborhood. Um, and so again, this this idea where having you know at the very least competition within these these spheres of services that the government has produced. Um, you know, we were already kind of seeing it in education. Can you talk a little bit about some attempts to, to provide alternatives in the security market, I think particularly right now, given crime rates going up in certain parts of the country, um, I, I see this as a topic that might be of,
0: of continual interest out there. Yeah, uh, the trends I see, I have a Google alert for like, terms like private police, and one of the trends I see is that as cities, such as Detroit... Um, become more financially hard-pressed. And you have a lot of people moving out, the tax base is shrinking. And they just made a lot of bad, uh, the city politicians there made a lot of poor uh, short-term or short-run thinking decisions in terms of how well they compensated police officers. So like a huge portion of the taxes that uh, Detroit residents are currently paying for police are going to already retired police officers and their very generous retirement packages. And so you have a lot of cities, including after uh, defund, which, I mean, in most cases, the budgets have been replenished, but it's not a light switch that you can turn on and off. A lot of these cities are having recruiting issues. And so a trend is that um, crime is going up in certain places. Uh, police forces are uh, undermanned. And so a lot of cities just aren't experiencing uh, the policing that... The level of policing they desire, and so they turn to private alternatives. And that seems to be uh, a big trend, I mean, not just recently, but over decades, um, as uh, employment in private security has grown. Um, people have had to find ways to, uh, as alternatives to uh, the city services they're uh, used to receiving. And uh, one thing I would like, I mean, I don't know. If if this will apply, but you mentioned um, school choice, vouchers, tax credits, and these other things, I, I want to recommend a paper by uh, the, the champion of school choice, Corey DeAngelis, that he uh, published in Libertarian Papers a few years back called Police Choice, which uh, applies these same ideas. You know, people are already paying tax money for schools. Why can't they choose where that money goes as far as uh, which school to send their child to? or? um whether they want to educate their child at home why can't they use that money for that purpose people are paying taxes for these policing services and not satisfied with what they're receiving or not receiving much policing at all uh, why can't they use that money elsewhere so um i expect to see this trend continue that uh, more people in various big cities that where uh now, policing is defunded or I mean an additional problem are with prosecutors who want to engage in criminal justice reform by just using their discretion to not prosecute street crime. People are alternative ways uh, to achieve public safety when these state-run monopolies uh, fail. Welcome back to Good
1: Money. I am your host. so Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute. we got a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. We have two great books that I think you will enjoy for just $5. These are great introductions into economic thinking and the very important issue of money and what the government has done to it. Uh, Those books are How to Think About the Economy, which is a short primer into proper economic thinking by Oklahoma State Professor Dr. Per Byland. And the other one is What Has Government Done to Our Money by the legendary Murray Rothbard, one of the founders of the Mises Institute. It's a great, great introduction into the history of money, the history of the Fed, uh, the consequences to government meddling within that. Um, you can get both these books for $5 at mises.org slash good. That's M-I-S-E-S dot slash good. Use promo code good money, one word at checkout, and shipping and handling is included. That's two books, five dollars. They're great for um, anyone, but uh, I, th- I think they're particularly helpful if you have a uh, student in the house, uh, maybe going through high school or you know, going through college right now. You want to give them a proper economic foundation to look at all the world's problems so they are debamboozled from some of the, the propaganda that they might be getting on their TikTok or other sort of. Apps or university classes out there. Um, again, you can get that at mises.org/slash-good promo code good money. Um, someone who knows how to think about the economy is our guest today, Dr. Tate Fegley of Bontree College up in North Carolina. Gave some excellent lectures last week at Mises University, um, which you can find at the Mises Media YouTube channel. Um, and one of the highlights of the week, in my opinion. Dr. Fegley, was your lecture on bureaucrats in the deep state, um, which really kind of provided a a wonderful economic analysis of a topic that has become a big issue within sort of political circles. Uh, But you kind of highlight, I I think, really break down on a very intellectual level, for one, just sort of our, our basic understanding of how Government is supposed to work, right? You have a media apparatus that is supposed to help inform the citizenry of abuses of government power so that voters can use the democratic mechanism to hold accountable uh, politicians. The politicians are the ones that are in theory in charge of various government agencies. The various government agencies carry through the priorities of that democratically elected government, and yet your talk sort of identified how this sort of uh, schoolyard rock style understanding of government really is not what it looks like in practice um, and the various incentives involved within that. So can we start with a little bit? We can start off with, with sort of the, the media component. Um, you know, what within your, your analysis of this dynamic, you know, what, what, what do, do we really have um, this sort of uh, checks and balances from the sort of inf- in, informed population, um, kind of having this adversarial relationship with Washington power brokers and in policy, uh, you know, uh, federal bureaucrats to help sort of make this entire system work.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned uh, these ideas about the media, this, uh, this the fourth estate, keeping the public informed about what's going on in government, what politicians and bureaucrats are doing. And as I've looked into this issue, I feel like I really have to change um, how I conceptualize the media, even what uh, consumers want from it. And I'm surprised that a lot of these uh, legacy media outlets still have any audience at all, um, if what they actually want is accurate information. But I mean, when you just dig down on them, you look at, say, the big networks like MSNBC and CNN. Uh, one thing I point out in how the deep state influences what is broadcasted to people, is just uh, how much they insert themselves, their own personnel, uh, into these networks. I showed one image that I borrowed from Matt Taibbi of just you know, a block of 16 talking heads at MSNBC, uh, all re- supposedly retired from uh, the CIA, the FBI, the US Army, the Department of Justice. Uh, And it's not just MSNBC, it's at CNN. And not only at the legacy media outlets of print and uh, TV uh, journalism, but also within social media. Uh, As we're just learning how deep the rabbit hole goes in terms of how various intelligence agencies have influenced big social media networks like Twitter and uh, Facebook, as well as Google itself. Google has over um, 100 employees the former CIA, FBI, etc., cetera, um, in making decisions about their content policy. So they really want to put this chokehold over the information available to people. And I think this explains why when you, you know, actually watch these uh, shows, you see just a real um, unified message that's hardly ever critical of, say, things like U.S. foreign policy or even U.S. domestic policy on things like uh, public health and responses to COVID, among many other things. Uh, So, see the deep states really um, influences the media in ways that uh, is just so profound. And um, I think often if we're not looking for it, I can just not realize the full extent uh, to which this is going on. And um, I reference a a book I definitely recommend for uh, those Interest in this topic was one uh, co-authored by my dissertation chair, uh, Chris Coyne at George Mason, um, and his co-author Abby Hall, called "Manufacturing Militarism," in which they really deep dive into uh, these various forms of government propaganda, um, and we see it everywhere right. uh, at sporting events, um, in commercials. It's just—it's really pervasive.
1: I was and that kind of leads to kind of a broader problem that I think people are, are recognizing. It it's, seems to be fueling a, a lot of the presidential campaigns. Is just the, the, the issue of incentives going on right now where, you know, you, you have various economic actors that recognize that they can benefit from the sort of the, the public trough. You, know, you mentioned the public health side of things, in particular, military-industrial complex and the like. That, again, without the ability to, to calculate really, you know, how um, – how these these goods and services are provided out there, um, it kind of is this, this rush to the public trough, so that you have you know, these these deep state actors promoted by media propagandists that are enriching various corporate actors that end up financing the campaigns of the politicians that again put in place these government actors. It's a sort of of, of continuing wheel of this sort of collective corruption dynamic that um, is, is sort of seems to be firmly baked into the pie here for for this bureaucratic entity.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we're when we're talking about these industries uh, that have this influence. I mean, we're often talking about just industries almost totally devoid of economic calculations, totally devoid of um, consumer choice. So, i mean, thinking about the COVID vaccines, for example. Um, when we're talking about it's crony capitalism at its perfection, I would say. Like, I can't imagine it um, being any more privileged, right? You have Uh, taxpayer money, um, buying uh, these medicines, these uh, medical treatments. Um, You have a a regulatory agencies that are pushing them, recommending everyone get them uh, completely forgoing the normal uh, safety protocols. Uh, You have uh, the deep state suppressing any dissenting information about the safety of these treatments. Uh, You have the government trying to mandate that employers uh, force their employees to use this, like just creating a totally captivated market. Um, you have uh, liability processes totally out the window that these uh, vaccine manufacturers uh, aren't going to be held liable for uh, any uh, adverse events. Like I can't, like how could this be anymore? Um, not reflected of a free market. And also not just, you know, Medicine, but also uh, the military industrial complex often being the ones financing these campaigns or even paying for ad space Which was always curious to me. It was a bit of a mystery. Why do we have like the uh, uh, Northrop Grumman uh, Military Bowl, why are they sponsoring bowls? They don't sell things to consumers and really I think it's to uh, you know, Provide ad revenue to these news networks and get this favorable coverage to not have um, many critical voices of, say, uh, foreign adventurism in Ukraine and Syria and all the other uh, places. So, yeah, in this case, I almost would treat media and paying for ad ad space and airtime as a productive input into rent-seeking, transferring wealth from the taxpayer to whatever favored interest we're talking about. Um, so... It's not, I mean, obviously, they can calculate their own profit and loss. They get revenue from the government. They can say, oh, this is what it costs us to, uh, you know, in terms of campaign contributions, here are costs in terms of uh, buying ad space. But it's not, economic, it's not profit in the sense of the economic sense of what consumers want. Uh, just like, you know, a bank robber can say, I have these costs. Um, I pay a getaway driver. I have these burglar tools. I... So a a bank robber, burglar can calculate their costs. They can see what revenue they have from what they've stolen, but uh, don't confuse this with profit and loss in the economic sense. Like they might personally profit, but it's not profit in the sense of allocating resources to more highly valued uses. Uh, So, yeah, when we're talking about uh, these cronies, it's devoid of economic profit and loss. They're not allocating resources. They might be making money, but it's not through... uh, providing things that consumers voluntarily want to buy. And of course,
1: you also get this dynamic where a demand for certain services ends up creating a dynamic where the entities that profit from it uh, create more demand. It's a fun story today, the New York Times, about how an FBI investigation into the use of a a controversial spy tool um, from a company that uh, the Biden administration put on a a blacklist um, recently uh, after this this thorough FBI investigation, surprise, surprise, the FBI found that it was the FBI <laughs> using using this spy tool. And of course, yeah. we've seen, as you mentioned in your your lecture, um you know, this this sort of um manufacturing of uh, crises to help justify um enlarging the budgets of some of these agencies. You know, again, this goes goes to that economic calculation issue. If you if you can't use market prices, you have to find all these other sort of political measures to help, you know, kind of let the, uh, the head of the FBI go to Washington policymakers and say, oh, we need a larger budget because look at how much we're doing, or we need a larger budget because look at what we can't do right now. It creates this dynamic. And I, I think out there you see a lot of frustration with libertarianism politically because people are kind of associating it with kind of the freedom to do all sorts of crazy things. Ultimately, though, reducing the state is the best way to, to have more economic calculation guiding these things. And I think anyone interested in this topic will find a lot of great wisdom from your lectures at the Mises Media YouTube page. Thank you for joining us today, Tate. Always a pleasure to chat. Join us on the other side of the break. We're going to talk about football economics in the recent FSU Brew Ha here on Money Talk 1010. Welcome back to the final segment of Good Money. I am your host, Tho Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S.org, is where you can find more content like you get on this show. you got a great front page on tap today, um, article by Lipton Matthews, who's a, a great uh, Jamaican economic commentator on real progress versus the progressives. We've got a, a great article on the British healthcare system, um, which uh, more resembles a status cult than advanced healthcare by uh, Jess Gill, who is a young Brit um, who was at Mises U last week. It was great, great meeting her in person. Um, some other great articles there. Again, you can find this content at the Mises Wire, which is the front page of the Mises Institute website. You can also find all sorts of great economic resources. Um, you know, we have a whole library of free books, audio books, podcasts, videos. Tons and tons of written material and so much more if you are interested in diving deep on your own to, uh, to better understand economics, history, the social sciences more broadly, then you can find that at Mises.org. Um, I wanted to end the show with a favorite topic of mine, which is the economics of sports and particularly that of college football. Um, there were some big headlines yesterday from FSU, where uh, there was the, the, a board of governors Meeting Dealing with the crisis of uh, FSU sports funding, uh, which all dates back to a TV deal that the ACC made in uh, 2016 dealing with uh, their television rights and how the, that 20-year contract has, let's just say, not aged particularly well. Um, FSU now finds itself in a hole of they're projecting $30 million dollars. To rival programs like uh, UF and others, um, as a result of their of the SEC and the Big Ten getting big fancy new contracts and the like, while the ACC is still stuck in this twenty year deal that everyone signed off on in the conference um, a, a decade ago, and I, I think this is interesting. Last week we talked a little bit about the. Uh, Hollywood strikes going on and the way that technology changes and viewing patterns have, um, you know, made some real disruptive dynamics within that industry that organized labor is trying to work out there. And it's kind of an, it's an interesting dynamic similar here where, um, you know, this, this sort of gold rush for TV rights, which kind of in some part plays back to this, right? Sports media and to a certain extent, Live news events, these are the sort of the the remaining pillars of the the pure TV watching experience. The the experience that is immune from streaming services and binge watching and Netflix and Hulu and the like. Um, It was interesting, my my wife and I are going through an X-Files binge right now. And so I like going to, after I watch an episode, looking at um, some of the reviews, some of the episodes from the 90s, and you can kind of see the TV ratings and like your average X-File uh, debut when it came on Fox in the early 90s dominates any recent similar sort of scripted show on place now. i mean, almost doubles, you know, like Blue Bloods or something like that on on CBS gets in uh, today. And again, this reflects this change of consumer habits. And so you'd think that this and this has helped fuel this massive. Rise in sports TV contracts, which the NFL, um, being the the kingpin of taking advantage of this dynamic in their own right, and now you have a dynamic where, you know, companies like Disney are severely cutting back some of their expenses. We saw a lot of ESPN talent, some of notable names, um, figures that have been on the channel for a decade plus, have been on the outs, and so FSU, I think, is 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 in this very interesting. Dynamic there, where you know they're, they're kind of asking either for the ACC to completely realign the ways that they delegate out the cash from within. That their argument, which is not an unreasonable one, that FSU viewership is a main driver of ACC revenue. But they're going to have to negotiate that with their peers, which have their own self-interest in managing that. I can see why Duke University is less interested in a, an equitable revenue share based off of TV interest. Um, and so what has resulted from that is that the FSU uh, trustees uh, dealing with the, the athletic program are threatening secession from the ACC. And there are legal Dynamics to that, whether or not they would be able to sue their way out of their grant of rights, they provide the conference, um, whether they you – know, there's a large exit fee within – terms of leaving in the ACC in, in the first place within that, um, and yet going out there right now, given this sort of growing economic uncertainty – um, in fact, there was a, a senator from Delaware who was re- revealed yesterday that a couple weeks before the Fitch credit downgrade that we started the show with um, bought a lot of um, investment products that to go up in times of uh, economic crises here in the U.S. Kind of interesting how that happens. Bidenomics pays off for the politically well-connected Delaware politician, it turns out. Um you know, their, their ability to sort of project themselves, you know, w- would they consider going independent following the FSU or the the, the Notre Dame model or something like that? Um, I, I think that the, the idea that there is a unlimited amounts of cash out there to invest within sports programming, no matter how well um, it has done relative, might be a more difficult challenge than the easy rhetoric out there. Um, So this is something I'm keeping our eyes on, the, the finances of college football. It's always a fun topic, but this has been Good Money Today here on Money Talk 1010. We'll see you next Thursday.